very simple example. You're in a meeting, a leader says, that was really a stupid idea. We failed. He thinks he's just being casual, like, oh, yeah, we screwed that up. Let's move on. Two people could leave that meeting thinking, shit, I might get fired tomorrow. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. The set of four questions that my next guest posed are pretty powerful. And I want to share those with you here in the intro because I need you to listen to this whole conversation. We go back and forth, very fluid, and he has uh, an original thought on here on the two Ps. But the questions, what are my desires? What are my concerns? What power issues are at play? And what rules and codes of conduct are shaping my opinions and judgments? Those are the four questions. My guest, Chuck Wisner, a new book he's got out, The Art of Conscious Conversation. Please pick that one up. I'm just about finished with it. But our conversation steers between the way that humans respond to different situations, uh, authority issues, facts, emotions, opinions, and how we play into a world where we have to cooperate with each other in, in different formats, whether it's in a relationship setting, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, or whether it's in a work setting. And what we talk about here will help you at so many different levels. So if you have a chance, pick up the book. Now listen in because we start off strong on this one. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Brilliant Thoughts, a Success Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Omada. I've got Chuck Wisner with me today. Very, very excited. Chuck, where are you out of, man? I am north of Boston, about 30 miles in a lovely little town called Manchester by the Sea. Oh, nice. That sounds nice. Is it snowing there? Nope. Nope. We have had the easiest fall and winter. It's unbelievable. Today, it's 50 degrees. It's crazy. Nice. It's nice. I'm a 40 minute ride to Boston and I'm in, I'm out of the city with ocean and forests all around me. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful area. I was just in Boston and we were going through and taking a look at where Benjamin Franklin was at. I brought my family. Oh, nice. So that was, that's always fun. That's great. Yeah. It's a, Boston's a great town. Chuck, you wrote a book, The Art of Conscious Conversations, but I also see a whole bunch of books behind you. So before I get started, like what? What's your favorite genre to read? Since an early age, I've had an interest in philosophy and spirituality. So I have a fair amount of history with teachers from those those areas. Currently, I like uh, the reemergence of the Stoic thinkers, who I think over time took a bad name, Dude. who took a bad rap. <laughs> and uh, I've had multiple spiritual teachers. And then when I changed careers 30 years ago, I studied the ontology of language. So I have a lot of philosophy of language books and things like that, that, that were the foundation of how I got to what I'm doing now. That makes a lot of sense because now I see it in the book. Uh, I'm just a little over a third of the way through, probably like closer to halfway. And I see it. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you I, by any chance, but you answered it. I go, are you into stoicism? And thank you for answering that. So there you go. 
Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you ever dive deeper into any specific stoic like um, Marcus Aurelius or anything along those lines? Over the years, I've read a bunch of that. Then I veered off and my teachers were more um, non-dual teachers, which from an Advaita tradition. Um, But what I've loved in the last five years or so is new authors bringing back Stoicism with a fresh fresh eye and a fresh uh, frame around it because they did get a bad rap about being, oh yeah, just be a hard ass and you're a stoic, you know, and life will be good. That's That's not what it's about. (laughs) I love that, man. So the second part of your book here, the second title, the, the, the subtitle underneath it, transforming how we talk, listen, and interact. That's what really got me when I was looking at your book initially, because a lot of our listeners are business owners, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and our business revolves around how we talk to people, whether or not we listen and how we interact, yeah. right? Yeah. It's all about relationships, whether it's online or or in person. And so yeah, I was really captivated by the first chapter that I've read here. And it's the first part because it's four chapters in this part. First part. Uh, storytelling conversations, your stories are not the truth. Let's go into that because right. there's a lot to unpack there, which I love. So wh- where did you start with that? Well, I, I think when I, again, when I, I changed careers because I, I was in an architecture firm and we had an alcoholic partner. I think there's a story in the book about that um, and didn't know what to do. So we hired help. And what this person did, her name was Linda Reed, what she did was she came in and assessed the situation, assessed us individually, helped us see what was going on, helped us accept reality of what was going on and helped us out the other end. And given my background in philosophy and psychology and and those things, I was like stunned by what she did. It felt like, wait a minute, that felt like a little like magic, you know, like what, how does she do that? Yeah. And that piqued my curiosity. And so it's a long story, but through four years, I ended up retooling myself. And in the study of ontology of language, that's when I got introduced to the power of stories and had to bust some very personal stories that I had about myself that were self-limiting. And so that had such a huge impact on me that you know I ended up changing careers and four years later and and uh, not I, I love architecture, but I left it to to pursue this new interest. All right. So that's great, man. I think as just humans in general, we all have these stories that we live by. It's almost like it's our operating system. How do you think we can best tackle changing the stories that we live by that that aren't the truth, but we feel are truthful? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't want to give stories a bad name because cultures, so our social lives and even our identities thrive on stories and, and stories are a beautiful thing. We have fiction and we get to tell each other stories about our lives. That's all beautiful. But there are stories that we adopt through our families and our culture, our religions that are what I, I guess they're harmful or I call them self-limiting. Yeah. And so they can live in our psyche <laughs> For a long time, my story in the book about not a big enough man lived in my psyche for a long time until I was able to like go, wait a minute, I have a story of, 
uh, that I'm not a big enough man, which I adopted from my grand my grandfather. And until I could like get get it out of my head and out here that I could actually look at it and go, wait a minute, is that true? Are there any facts to back that up? How does it make me feel? What are my, my emotional reactions to this? And slowly by grounding ourselves in reality, asking some questions, we can begin to, to loosen the grip that these unserving stories have on us. What, what does it take though to be, be aware of these stories? Because uh, I see people that live and then they die without really realizing that they were limited by the stories they were telling themselves daily. Yeah. So I agree with you. I have siblings that suffer from stories they can't undo. I think there's three things. One, we have to become more self-aware of the chatter that's going on inside our heads. So, you know, daily we are all, we have conversations with other people, but we have conversations with ourselves. Yes, we do. (laughs) And those internal dialogues are often a clue about the stories that aren't serving us well. Uh, Because if I have a story that's running in the background and it's creating stress or creating anxiety for me, that's then I can stop and go, wait a minute, I want to, I want to, I want to shine a light on that puppy. (laughs) Okay. So in regards to that, because I'm I'm also, I'm hearing two things on that in my head from what you say, right? I'm interpreting it in two ways. (laughs) I'm interpreting it one. Pay attention to anything that is really causing distress in your life or or maybe alerts and making you feel like, what the hell's going on? I have anxiety, maybe nervousness. Right. And then you sit down and you analyze it. But I've also noticed two things. Here they are. One is I feel sometimes challenged, and that's not necessarily me wanting needing to quit something. It's just me needing to step up, number one. Right. Number two is sometimes I'm like, wait a second. I think I do need to stop doing this. I need to quit. Right. How do you tell which one is the difference in your business and in your life? Okay. So I think on the challenge side of things, right, that is, I put it in the category of desires, which is one of the major themes in my book uh, of, of, of four questions that I have in the book. So our desires, our goals, those are the things that drive us to action that that say you know what i had this goal i'm going to do what i need to do to get there that's all very um self-affirming and positive right so that we want to we want to capture that and not say it's bad the other side is when we have desires that don't align with reality there's a mismatch mm-hmm. between what i want and what's real or even what i want and what's true so my story my uh, harmful story about not being a big enough man mm-hmm. was harmful in a way. And then when I could see that, wait a minute, wh- what that story line is and what the truth is, they don't line up. Yes. Okay. Right. And that misalignment causes a lot of suffering for people. Got it. That makes a lot of sense, man. I think a lot of the challenges stem from just that, the the misalignment. You, I highlighted highlighted a section in your book uh, with the four questions. So I'm glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. They are, I'm just going to go through them and then we we can talk about them. Uh, the four, sure. I'm going to read it. It says four quintessential elements constitute our opinions. We can process our private conversations by asking four archetypal questions about them. And here they are. Number one, what are my desires? Number two, what are my concerns? What power issues are at play here? I loved that one. What power issues are at play here? And number four, what rules and codes of conduct 
are shaping my opinions and judgments. I found that one the hardest one to answer, by the way. Yeah. But I was like, what the hell? Like, how deep do I have to go here? (laughs) Pretty deep. (laughs) Yeah, man. I don't know if I had the time to go deep on some of these. I'm like, whoa. But I'll tell you, number three made me look at the very first thing I thought of when I thought, when I read, what power issues are at play? Because everyone has people listening in, they're thinking of problems they have. Like, let me approach this way. And I'm thinking, what power issues are at play? Very first thing I thought of was my ego. Like, let me step back because I'm probably looking at this and saying, oh, me, me, me. What have I removed? So take me through the idea, because I also see a little circle. It's this concerns, standards, mm-hmm. desires, and authority. Yeah. Take me through this, these, the idea behind these questions. Okay. My reason for the questions is that, as I say in the book, when we break down our stories, they break, our stories break down into facts, emotions, and opinion. Minus the political belief that there's alternative facts. We'll put that aside for now. I mean, we can all agree that facts are facts. The table is the table. Black is black. The sky is blue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Emotions are actually, and I'm going to diverge a little bit here take a little tangent. The emotions are actually a reflection of our thinking, a reflection of our opinions and our prejudices and our beliefs, right? So if we want to deal with an emotion, we go to our thinking. We go to the underbelly of our emotions, which is the thinking underneath them, right? So to do that, when we get into our internal thinking and our opinions and our judgments of others and ourselves, it gets very messy. <laughs> <laughs> it does, man. I mean, that's why. Really? I was, gets, I was having a problem with number four on that. I was like, what? Yeah, it gets really messy for a couple of reasons. One reason is that most of our standards, most of our desires, definitely authority issues, sort of live in the background of our consciousness. They're driving a lot of our reactions and our, emo- our emotional reactions. They aren't in the forefront of our attention, right? Yeah. So by using the four questions, we can actually get underneath some of our reactions, get underneath some of our judgments. And my experience, and I'll guarantee people, if you do that work, which sometimes can be painful because there's not always pretty stuff there. But if you do that work, you'll discover that you a, a can maybe let go of something. You can maybe let go of a standard or accept it as a standard and not fight somebody else because they have a different standard. You can let go of a desire because it doesn't line up with reality, or you can embrace it because it's going to get you butt off the chair and get you (laughs) doing something different, right? That's true. And the authority issues are so embedded in every interaction we have. It doesn't matter whether it's a friend. One friend can tell you you look like shit today, and another friend can tell you, you you look great. And or both of them can tell you that, and your reaction to what they say is like depending on what you think of that person. And uh, how how much have you seen? And I know you can't answer this specifically, but how much of have you seen that being the issue as ego being the problem? Right. So yeah. So ego plays a big role here because if we think our opinion or our position is true, right, and we're attached to it our identity is attached to it, right? Then we're going to lean into the arrogant side of things 
because we think we have the answer because we know the answer because we're going to be the smartest one in the room. This plays out in business all the time. Authority issues are a huge problem in business. Whether you're a salesperson or a leader, no matter what, there is in every conversation, if you really pay attention, there are authority issues playing out. Oh, dude, I see it all the time. It's nuts. So how do we solve for that if if it's a challenge? How do we solve for that? Yeah. Because you you had you had a pretty big one in your business where you said, Hey, I had somebody that we needed to step out of um, this whole business. But right. But what has been your experience on how to how to live and then grow from this situation? So they're they're different in the two in whether we're talking work or home. Let's go with work first and then home. And then home. So at work, we're dealing with a hierarchy that is man made, right? It's it's not God given. There's no blood involved, <laughs> and it's man made, right? So you step into those virtual four walls of the office or the real four walls of the office, and automatically there's a hierarchy that I'm not criticizing the hierarchy I'm, because we have to do that to make decisions, to make things happen, Yeah. but it's a trap because for every leader unaware of the power of their voice, yeah. they will make tons of mistakes. They will show up as arrogant. They will show up as having to have the answer. They will show up as masking their insecurity, yeah. right? Right. I see that. And and the more a leader does that, on the on the receiving end, the more the people or his team or his you know uh, colleagues will receive him differently than what he's even aware of. And what a simple example, very simple example: you're in a meeting, a leader says that was really a stupid idea. We failed. He thinks he's just being casual, like, oh, yeah, we screwed that up. Let's move on. Two people could leave that meeting thinking, shit, I might get fired tomorrow. Oh, wow. The implications of a simple sentence is deep. The imp- ev- that's their every word that they speak. I call it the power of 10. They don't realize that their every motion, their, their every word is received far differently than they have awareness of. Interesting. And so, Becoming aware of it, they have a couple moves to make. They can say, instead of being the first to tell the answer, mm. I'm going to sit back and ask people what they think about this particular problem we're talking about or this particular issue, right? That's one way of, of undoing that psychological safety, that the, the, the lack of psychological safety that exists if a leader is uh, having sort of authority issues and projecting uh, uh, a, a different... Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 projecting that they have the answer and they and they're the the, the the smartest one in the room. Got it. Asking questions, asking questions. It makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I, you know, we're not going through the conversation, but ironically, those four questions you ask me about desire, concerns, authority, standards. Yeah. Those are also really great, a great shortcut thing to remember. I want to do a T-shirt of how to ask other people good questions. Oh, interesting. I like that. All right. So now shift me over to the family, to relationships, yeah. to girlfriend, yeah. boyfriend, e- even siblings or parents. Right. How do we play this out with that? Yeah. So now now we're we're now we're in the blood zone, right? We're in the, <laughs> you know this like, is where it gets serious. 
Yeah, I have two young. I have two young men that are my sons. They're in their thirties. They live in New York, and you know, as a parent, uh, as I was learning this new world of mine of the power of language, mm-hmm. I became aware of how much my voice mattered to them. Yeah, how much my criticism, my judgment landed on their ears, which was really different than how it felt on my side of the equation, right? Yeah. Power of 10 again, you know, I can say you guys did a shitty job and they might just, you know, I'm thinking, well, let's figure out how to do it better. And they might start crying or they would have started crying. We were talking about 20 years ago or something. So there's always that dynamic husband and wife. People have power struggles all the time. Who's the boss? Who wears the pants? Who does this? You know, and and that now if we combine power authority issues with standards, then we're into relationship issues that really get messy and taking them apart, sort of peeling peeling it back and taking them apart uh, is really helpful because otherwise we're just battling without knowing that hell standards that I picked up from my family or standards my wife picked up from her mother or grandmother or auntie, right? Mm-hmm. Different standards um, could have us at odds versus we could say, wow, we just have different standards about that. Who wins tonight? I mean, yeah. a, a stupid, silly example, my wife's standard of what a clean kitchen looks like before we go to bed <laughs> is a clean is a clean kitchen. You're failing. My standard Chuck, is- You're going to fail there. <laughs> yes. And my standard is the hell with it. I'm too tired. I just had a drink. I'm going to bed. So, you know, we could fight. We could have really bad fights about that. But instead we go, okay, do we go to bed like queens or do we go to bed like, do we wake up as queens or do we wake up as maids? No. And we can actually have fun with it and we get get light with it and we can just recognize it just just there for standards. How long does it take to get there? Because like... Chuck, I've been married for 25 years, and I can tell you, like, <laughs> we've had some pretty like aggressive arguments, right? Earlier on, because our standards, yeah. our standards were at odds. How? Yeah. People listening in, like, this is on a relationship, on a blood level, like, yeah. How can we just get to where we want to get to faster when when it's two completely different people? Yeah. So there's there's two things that I I, I like to hang that I'll, I'll answer that about. One is it it takes practice, right? But the other is so we can call this the two P's. When when we are in a relationship and standards issues come up, I love to talk about these things as patterns. That I have a pattern about thinking about the dishes, or thinking about a made bed, or thinking about um, in business, thinking about what does good look like, what does a good PowerPoint look like. I have really high standards with the clients I work with. Recognizing that our standards aren't the truth, like our stories aren't the truth, they're standards that we 90% adopted unconsciously because of our experience, because of our family, because of our culture. So as soon as we call them patterns, we get a little bit of a, a, a free pass to not judge ourselves or not judge the other and say, wow, look at that. We have different standards. And I mean, if you want, you can then ask yourself, where in the hell did that come from? Uh, mm-hmm. I've done an exercise with women's groups where I say, so how many of you, when you leave the home in the morning, you know, you sort of feel a little bad if all the beds aren't made and majority of hands will go up. And I'm saying, I'm not judging, but I just want to ask you, where did you adopt that standard? 
They learn it from their mother, their grandmother. Their, they were told that's what a good mother does. They were told that was a good wife does. Yeah. Not good or bad. It's just a standard. It's a pattern that we adopt, right? Yeah, that's that's good, man. I like that. Just the change in, I'll tell you how it made me feel. Just you're listening in, changing the word from standard to pattern, right? All of a sudden, it's I, I feel less attacked. Like if you're telling me like, oh, right. hey, your standards just don't meet the, what we're looking for. I'm like, what? But like, hey, yeah, your, your patterns, right? They just not. I'm like, oh, okay, well, what about what about my patterns? I can change that. But I can't change my standards, Chuck. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can, but only by looking I know, at them. I know. So that's the, then that's, that's where the second peak comes in. That's the practice part, you know? Because <laughs> the more we separate, the more we see our, our standards and our issues with power or our desires more, or our, yeah, our, our, all of those questions, the more we see them as patterns, the more we can separate from them and go, wow, so that one's worthy of investigation. Hey, I'm not going to give up this standard, but but this one, it's causing problems in my relationship. You know, I will help the dishes rather than go to bed mad, right? Now on the work side, I have leaders, I work with some really great leaders who have really high standards, but here's the key. They make that explicit. They know exactly what those standards are, whether it's excellence, quality control, Whatever it is, they have high standards and they make that explicit up front. And by doing that, then it's a lot easier in a fair-minded, kind way to hold people accountable. Got it. Got it. That that makes sense. It reminds me of that legendary uh, CEO uh, that Ford had, Alan. Uh, oh, yes. Alan. Um, was it Mal- uh, Mal- Drawing a blank on his name. Malali. Mal- 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 yeah. yeah. Malali, yes. Yeah. And right. so a kind approach, right? A very benevolent uh, leader and mm-hmm. standards, right? He says, hey, this is what we're going to shoot for everybody, but we're going to do this together and in, in, in a great environment. So I just right. reminisced about right. that. Uh, so two Ps, practice and patterns. Those were the two, just so yes, right. I like. Yeah. Let's re- reverse the order. First, recognize the pattern, and then you practice saying, "I'm going to, I'm going to investigate that, and work toward changing that." And the reason that practice is, is so important, think about it like golf. Think about it like playing the piano uh, or any new thing you're learning. It's going to take a little time to change a pattern, which is fine. But if you're light about it, if you're curious about it rather than judging about it then it's a lot easier to, to create a practice because you're going to screw up and you say, Oh God, there I went. I fought with my wife about that. Or I, I, I didn't meet the standard at work. Okay. I wake up buddy, you know, and, and that's the practice. If we catch, we investigate, we catch, investigate change. I love that, man. That's a, that's really good. The two P's. I like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I never put those together until our conversation just now. So <laughs> we need to have Thank more conversations, you. Chuck. We need to talk more. <laughs> All right. Uh let's go into yeah. trust your intuition. So this, oh, yeah. this is the part in the book that I'm barely getting to. So when it comes to this this uh creative conversations, we yeah. we hear two sides of things. We, we, we hear in the business world, 
we're like, trust your gut, trust your intuition. But we also hear the other side of this, which is never trust your gut, never trust your intuition, do the work, do the research. Uh, where where do you fall in this when you're saying trust your intuition? What does that yeah. mean to you? So I think what, what's happened is over time, the left brain, our intellectual, rational left brain has been elevated for a long time. With the, it helped us become come through the industrial revolution it helped us develop engineering helped us develop science all that is beautiful stuff right yeah the trouble is that we left our right brain which is our creative brain and our more intuitive brain in the dust so my take is we have to reacquaint the two of them and there and there's a beautiful book written by ian McEwen. he says we have it backwards and he's done a lot of research in, that, in fact, our right brain, our creative brain, the way it actually works and it's wired is the master. And our logical right brain is a servant of that. And so if you think about it, we have it all, all backwards. Oh. And so it's reacquainting with the right brain, trusting that, you know, trusting our creative juices, trusting our intuition. Of course, if I have intuition and I have science that says you're wrong, buddy, those two can come together. They're not they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of the way that Albert Einstein used to go through processes, which is like, yeah. he was very creative. He's like, let's just imagine that it's possible, even though it's not, and let's go through it. Yep. And so very, very creative, right? He would go with his intuition. Yeah. He would say, you know, some of my best ideas came when I was out walking the dog or when I was shaving in the morning, you know? And for me, my, my experience and, and, and working with teams and leaders is you have to create that space where your mind is open enough that ideas can bubble up. I mean, if you think about it, when a great idea comes into your head, you could spend a day going, where in the hell did that come from? Well, don't waste your time because there's no figuring it out. That's right. Uh, <laughs> just get to work on it. Just, just grab it. Go, whoa. Well, well, thank you, God, or thank you, whatever you want to call it, right? Because when we open our minds and open our thinking to possibilities, to bigger things than what we're stuck with, like that's another thing about if we, if we don't believe our stories is truth, then all of a sudden there's space for us to say, well, there's another way to think about it, right? And in and so, and that open space, that mind openness is where we actually generate ideas from. And in business, um, we tend to be uh, uh, addicted to our stories and we like to be addicted to action, which is the last conversation, last part of the book. And we skip over the juicy, sometimes difficult, uh, but incredibly effective collaborative and creative conversation. So the real collaborative conversation of you and I are talking and we're learning from each other and new ideas, like the two piece popped up for me today, the first time ever. Well, that was because of our conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So a collaborative conversation we're doing we're learning from each other, yeah. we're opening, we're accepting. And then all of a sudden we're in a creative conversation where ideas bubble yeah. up, right? We do the bypass, which I call a conversational bypass. We go from storytelling, what do we think about this? And there's a whole bunch of ideas floating around the room. And then someone says, or the leader says, worse, worse, he says, okay, what are we going to do? So we go from storytelling so what are we going to do? Action, commitment, who's doing what by when? Mm -hmm. And we bypass those middle two conversations. Are those middle two conversations usually bypassed or 
Is this something that only happens when you're in flow? Well, when you're in flow, you don't bypass. Okay. Yeah. Right. You're in the moment. You're going, okay, what's going on here? You're, you know, you're present. You're, you're listening. There's space. You're, you're, you're with it more or less. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, when I say the intuitive piece, it's also trusting just your experience, like basketball players, football players, all the amazing things they do. There ain't no thinking going on when they're doing that. They're just in the zone, man. Like John Wooden. John Wooden would be like, just just do stuff. Just do it. Just go do it. Don't think about it. Yeah. So, yeah. So in your flow, that's good. But in business especially, um, and it, it it seeps over into home life, we, we really, if you think about meetings, we really love to have different stories being told. And then we really are sort of addicted to jumping to say, okay, who's doing what by when? What's the decision we're going to make? And some leaders say, I don't have time for the other stuff. And I say, you don't have time not to do the other stuff because how many decisions get unmade, how many are, are made badly and have to be redone? How many decisions aren't well vetted? How many decisions didn't, didn't explore other possibilities before you took the choice you took, et cetera, et cetera. How does the leader slow down to be able to work better there and take advantage of that mm-hmm. possible situation to be able to grow? Yeah. Um, they, A, they have to become self-aware mm-hmm. to understand the power of their position, the power of their voice, right? That will lead them to shift from being a knower. In, in one sense, we're all trained to be knowers. We're trained to have the answer. That's what we raise our hand in school for. Mm -hmm. We raise our hand because we have the answer and we get the gold star. In business, we raise our hand and say, I have the answer and we get a promotion. I'm not criticizing that, but I'm saying that's a trap that we fall into thinking that to be successful, we have to have the answer. And the higher you get in the hierarchy, the less answers you're going to have because it's just too damn complex. So true, man. That's so true. Right? too complex. So you switch from being, okay, I can have all the answers. I don't even have to have all the answers, which by the way, is scary for a lot of people. But in the end, it's a relief. So like, oh shit, we're gonna, I don't have to pretend. It's right. So true. We're like, uh, we don't know what we're doing. We're just going to figure it out as we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and meanwhile, I'll try to look good. Um, <laughs> you know what I just thought, Chuck? Oh, I, I thought- the right answer is probably the wrong answer. The higher you go up. Right. Right. The right answer you think you have is probably the yeah, wrong answer. Even- so if we can like, if we can shift from being a knower to being a learner, like, okay, I don't, I can't have all the answers, but I have a responsibility to understand what's going on. Right. And guess what? That leads us into the second part of the book about collaborative conversations leads us to this notion of we have to rebalance how we advocate and how we inquire that we've lost the art of asking questions. Mm. And so I've, I've been saying, if I have one, one piece of advice for leaders, fall in love with questions. You know, um, someone says we should do this, ask three questions before you make a decision. You know, um, just we're, because we want to have the answer because that's where we're trained. We tend to advocate for our position. And the metaphor, I don't know that this is in the book, but the metaphor I'm using lately is if we go into a meeting and uh, and we're talking about, maybe we're talking about a new strategy 
And I go in with a closed fist saying, this is the right strategy. I know it is. Mm -hmm. And you come into the meeting with a fist like, I know this is the right strategy, right? We've all experienced this. We're in meetings where just there's a bunch of egos saying, no, 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 it should be this, it should be this, it should. And all we're doing is banging our fists against each other, right? Or banging our heads against the wall, right? That's ego related, self, lack of self awareness, lack of understanding of conversations. With the questions that we talked about earlier, we can go, okay, I have a position and I'm not asking anybody to give up their position, but I'm asking them to investigate it. You know, what are my desires? Why do I want this? What do I want to have, have happen in this meeting? Are there authority issues here? Oh, I'm the boss. I better, I better speak last instead of speaking first. You know, what are my concerns for tomorrow? Well, if we don't get this right, we'll fail. What are my standards, right? Mm-hmm. By investigating our own position, then we can go into a meeting instead of with a fist, we can go into a meeting with an open hand. And when I say open hand, I'm talking about going into a meeting saying, hey, here's my position, but here's why I'm thinking the way I'm thinking. Here are my concerns. Here's what my desires are. Here are my standards. And oh, by the way, I am the boss, but I need to hear from you guys because that's how I can make my best decision. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, man. I love that. So yeah. now that I'm understanding better so thank i feel like i just had a a course on your book which is great by the way (laughs) uh are there patterns that you've seen that great leaders have that have made them more aware of how they function with other people yeah yeah so there's two extremes one extreme is a leader i worked with uh years 10 years ago or so who was incredibly passionate about what he was doing. It had, it was in the energy sector. He was very passionate about a, a new uh, sort of uh, strategy business model that they were working on. And I was getting through other people complaints about how difficult it was for to work with him. And he was totally puzzled. He was like, you know, I care so much. I take care of my people all that stuff. Well, when I was hired and I decided to observe their meetings, because I have to do an assessment to figure out what the heck's going on. What I saw was his passion, how he demonstrated his passion. He would get up on a, on a flip chart and he would start saying, look at this. This is amazing. We can, this is, here's where we are and here's where we can go. And he, and he's getting red in the face and boom. And, and then he'd stop and he'd go, what do you guys think? And crickets. Mm. Because his passion was being what he thought was passion. It was being received as, well, there ain't no other way but Joe's way. Right? So, you know, so for him, it was a simple awareness of how his pattern, the consequences of his pattern. Mm-hmm. Once he saw the consequences of his pattern, he then could practice changing it. Got it. That's good. But he was blind to the consequence. He he was like, didn't realize how his presentation was being received. Yeah, I could see that. A lot of us are. I mean, I know I'm I'm probably blind to a whole bunch of patterns I suck at. So the trick is, you know, not to judge your pattern, but to 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 see to become more aware of the consequences of your pattern. Mm-hmm. You know, like if if my wife and I's pattern about the dishes or 
made beds or whatever uh, is causing us harm or creating conflict, right? Let's become aware of that, right? So we can change and practice doing it differently. Um, and nobody has to give up their pattern, but we can be, or, or, yeah, their standard, but we can be more aware and be light and, and actually work through it rather than have it be uh, conflictual. I like that, man. You focus on the consequences. It also helps you actually change because you're seeing it's pain, right? It's I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. So you said one example was this passionate leader. What about the other example? Yeah. Okay. The other example is a really great leader who has, I've been working with for 15 years or more. And it was the irony about my business. My best clients are good leaders that just want to stay on top of their game. They're not like leaders that, oh, you have a problem. You need a coach. I mean, I do those guys and gals, but they're, they're not my favorite clients um, because, because A, sometimes they don't want to coach. <laughs> and I say no thank you to that gig, right? Yeah. But if they want to change, then they have some hard work to do and, and we, we work together. But in the other spec side, with these a really good client who's well aware of his patterns, right? He, he can, because of that self-awareness, he can go into a meeting and say, you know, I want to just beat up on these rascals, right? But what I realize is they don't, they don't have the same experience. Uh, they don't have the same uh, training, education. And they might have been doing what they're doing for 15 years. And I come along and I'm showing them a new way. It's so obvious to me, it's not obvious to them. Yeah. So rather than go and beating them up over the head, I have to go in and I actually have to do, lately a client and I have been calling this, I have to go in and do a masterclass. This is how I think. Here are my standards. Wow. And if we're trying to solve this problem, here's how I think about it to get to the optimal decision. That's a really different approach than going in and beating up people. Dude. That is pretty powerful in that approach, in this deep dive into how I think and how I'm going to approach this because I've done this for that and this is how it's going to look type of thing. Is that collaborative? Do you take questions? Do you take suggestions in that? How does that work? Yeah. So the distinction I make is, you know, coaching has been around for a long time. I, I actually don't call myself a coach anymore. I call myself a leadership advisor, but um, just because it's, I think, the word coaching has been abused a bit. There's a distinction. If you have a good team that are experienced and have, you know, are competent, let's put it that way, you can coach them toward a better result based on whatever your mission is or what your goals are, what your desires are. But you're often going to run into people that what you're asking them to do, they don't have the education the skill, the experience to do. You can ask them questions till you're blue in the face, but if they don't know what they don't know, I like to say, then you switch from, then you switch from coaching to teaching, mm-hmm. from coaching to educating and not educating in a, like a arrogant way. Like I know what you don't know, but Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that you didn't, you never thought of, this engineering problem this way because you've never been taught that. Yeah. So let me, this is, this is a way to think about it that will get us the best result. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense, man. 
I, I can see that. Yeah. I, I love that. By the way, that's a really different approach that I really like. Yeah. I hadn't thought about. That. You know, coaching is great. And, and you can ask questions. It's a Socratic method um, to get people to go, wow, okay, how would you do that differently? Well, we could turn it upside down. We could put a table here. We could do this. Yeah. But if they if you get to a point where they can't see what they can't see, then you switch. Oh, I like that, man. Uh, the ability to adapt quickly and just come from a point of helping, right? Curiosity, asking right. questions. Supporting, right. I love yeah. yeah. And 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 acknowledging that they don't know what they don't know without judging. It's like, oh wow, you've never had that experience. Yeah. Let me tell you about a few things that happened to me that made me realize how powerful this this um way of thinking is. Yeah, that's great, man. I need to work on that, buddy. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. Was- practice. Practice. <laughs> practice. <laughs> Practice, 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 patterns, patterns, patterns. Uh, art of conscious, yeah, art yeah. of conscious conversations. Everyone, please pick that up. Uh, and Chuck, where do we go and follow you? Where do you typically go? Do you have a newsletter? Are you on Instagram or Twitter? What does that look like? Yeah, I'm in one of these painful spots where I'm a, a, a new author. So I, I, I and and my work has been incredibly confidential because I work for companies that. I actually signed confidentiality agreements with because I'm working at senior levels. So as a new author, I'm sort of building my platform. I'm building up stuff. To, buying the book for me on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or your local bookstore is really helpful. Perfect. But um, my website is Chuck chuckwisner.com. I am doing Instagram, which is Chuck underscore Wisner, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And I, and I just, I just had, um, in the last month, six weeks, I've had five articles published, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Forbes, Fortune, and Thrive, Thrive Global. So I've had a bunch of publications that are out there. They're all on my Instagram page. I I like that. So we're going to, we're going to follow you. And I see Barrett Kohler is the publisher. Yep. Right. Right. I like that. All right. What book are you reading right now, Chuck? Anything? Oh, yeah. I'm reading a book called Zen of Psychology. Zen Psychology. <laughs> Let me take a look at that. Yeah. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. Um, it's it, but What I like about this, it, this is a guy who's sort of been in the Buddhist thinking model for a long time, and he's also a, a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of blends the two. I'm looking that up. Did you find it? Yeah, I I found I think I found it. Let me grab it on Amazon. Zen psychologist. Nope, that's the wrong one. Amazon. I'm gonna take a look at this one. All right. Well, when you find it, text it over to me or email it over to me. I'll I'll add it to uh Yeah, I don't I, I'm right where I'm at now. I don't have my books I, in front of me. Um yeah. This was a this was a great yeah. conversation. I appreciate that, Chuck. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for having me. This has really been a great conversation. (laughs) Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.